before I let you find that out, I just wanted to make a quick comment about the Thrive Groups. Um, I hope you will just take a trip over to that table and check out the variety of small group offerings that are going on here at the church. Um, small groups are a wonderful opportunity uh, to get into a context of 8 to 12 people and really get to know them um, it's a great opportunity to learn some content that maybe you're not familiar with or maybe you were before and you can contribute into the conversation. But I think more than that, it provides this atmosphere where you get to know people. Um, they care for you. You care for them. And they say that when people join a church and they join a, a small group, that that helps them to feel more plugged into that group, uh, church. So really want to encourage you to do that. This morning we're going to be talking about grace. We have a couple of small groups that are dealing with that topic this semester. I encourage you to go check out the Grace small group. So if you would, we're back in Genesis. Genesis chapter 21. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there's a blue Bible in the chair in front of you. You can pick that up. And uh, you'll be with us. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. So if you're wondering where to find it, just open up right to the beginning. Genesis chapter 21. Now several months back, I was having a spiritual conversation with a man who was interested in Christ. Um, he was certainly engaging in dialogue, but I don't think that he was ready to commit to Christ at that point. He had heard the gospel, and I think he understood the basic points of the gospel, maybe even was emotionally connecting with the gospel. But he said something along these lines. He said, you know, it just seems too much like a utopia to me as you talk about this whole Jesus thing. Now, what he meant was kind of in this sense, if, if you trust Jesus, then all of your problems are going to go away. And as he thought about that with how he observed the real world, he said, that just doesn't compute to me. So I said something that I think might have taken him quite off guard. I said to him, what you're saying is too good to be true. I mean, if I've ever left you with the impression that life becomes perfect when you trust Jesus, I apologize for that because uh, here's the deal. Life doesn't get easier when you trust Jesus. In fact, some of the burdens that you were carrying before you trusted Jesus come right along with you. And here's what's even scarier. When you trust Jesus, sometimes it gets harder. You see, when God saves you, He does come into your situation he starts doing spiritual work in your life, but the immediate fact of salvation is that you have been secured for eternity, fully forgiven by the blood and power of Jesus Christ. And God has fixed you for eternity in that way. He was immediately struck by my wise words and he trusted Jesus right then and there. No, that's not what happened. <laughs> No, he said that he would take the words that I had said and that he would go back and think about those words. And uh, Lord willing, today, maybe he's made a faith decision. I don't know. See, one reason that Jesus, after we trust Jesus that it's not all Snow White and Prince Charming is that God does not erase the effects of the sins of our past. But you think to yourself, but didn't God say that I would be forgiven if I trusted Jesus Christ? Well, absolutely. 
You are fully forgiven when you trust Jesus Christ. There's no sin that you commit that is too great for the grace of God. Psalm 103 uh, boldly declares this, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So what am I talking about here? Well, I want you to envision something with me. I want you to take a look over at that cross, and that cross has two beams on it. That vertical beam I want you to envision represents your relationship to God. Now, the, the Christian experience sometimes can feel quite like a yo-yo uh, because you're going up that beam and you're talking to God and you're saying, God, I confess that I've sinned against you. I have things that I've done. I, I regret that yet again I am coming to you and confessing this particular sin. Now, God never looks at you when you climb that vertical beam and come to him in confession and says, get out of here, climb back down, crawl on your knees for a couple of weeks, and then come back and talk to me again later. No, he's full of forgiveness, isn't he? The Bible says if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But still, it feels like that yo-yo. But praise God that his forgiveness is immeasurable. But there's another beam on that cross. And, and this tends to be the messier beam because that horizontal beam represents your relationships in the world. See, God forgives you and he wipes the slate clean in terms of your relationship to him. But our sins have lingering consequences. For example, uh, say today you decide to jump into your car and while you're driving in your neighborhood, you start texting someone while driving and little Fido runs out into the road and you run Fido over. You go and you knock on your neighbor's door and you, 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 you pray to God and say, God, forgive me for being so careless in this situation. And, and God forgives you and, and maybe your neighbor forgives you, but Fido's not going to forgive you. Why? Because Fido's dead, and he's not coming back. Now, let me get to a more serious situation. What about those broken relationships that happen that are left in the wake of years of unchecked anger? Do the words that you say, the insults that you've said to a child just go away? Because when you first spoke them, they ripped through their mind like shrapnel. You see, this is the sober truth. God forgives, but the effects remain. And it's with this thought in mind that we pick up the next part of Abraham's story here in Genesis chapter 21. And I hope that at this point in the story that one point is coming through loud and clear. And it is this, that Abraham is not in a class of the spiritual elite that you cannot attain. If you're convinced that there are some people out there who have no struggles, always trust God, do not sin, guess what, friend? You're just plain wrong. That's not true to life. That's not reality. I don't find any person in all the Bible who looks like that other than Jesus. And even Jesus struggled. He suffered on a cross. See, Abraham's not immune from the problems of the real world yet. The Bible says 
He walked by faith. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. You guys there? All right, the text tells us this, that the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Now, just in the first service, uh, we, we had a couple of pregnant moms in the room, and I got to tell you, there is just nothing better than that anticipation of expecting a child. I was trying to think of life events, and I, I, I don't know if there's anything that brings more joy and laughter than holding one of those precious little children. I was thinking through the birth of each one of my children. It's a lot different for each one. And I got to tell you, if you're expecting a child right now, I can't even put it into words until you experience it. And then I can't describe how quickly you lose it when they turn five. (laughs) Now, I want you to take all of that excitement and anticipation and multiply it by a hundred now. When Isaac was born, Abraham's a hundred years old. Sarah's 90. They've been waiting and waiting and waiting for 25 years. I don't think when Abraham left Ur of the Chaldeans that he could even envision all of the ups and downs, the struggles, uh, the successes that he would experience. And now he and Sarah are finally holding this precious baby in their hands. And the Bible makes it clear that this birth came about because God is faithful to his word. Look at verse 1. I want you to underline that word visited in your Bible. That's an important verb. It is used in the Bible to describe a moment where God shows up in a miraculous way and he, he changes the trajectory of someone's life by visiting them. We also see those phrases, as he had said, as he had spoken, as he had told him in verses 1 and 2. The point is clear. There's one reason and one reason only that Sarah and Abraham are holding this child. And it's because God's faithful. Because his word can be trusted. And when you think about the the faithfulness of a word or trust, really, when you boil it down, God's word is the only word that you can trust ultimately. You can't trust everything you read on the internet. I hate to break that to you. You can't trust everything that a professor in a classroom says to you. We, we all know that you can't trust every word of a politician, and you can't even check, uh, trust the word of the people that check the politicians, right? Because statistics, they can be manipulated, photos fake, stories twisted. But consider God and his trustworthiness. I think there's a couple of lessons on trust that we see in this concerning God. The first is this, that there are no obstacles with God. Not biology, not nature. When God purposes to accomplish his will, it happens because God said it would happen. There is no boundary that God cannot cross when it comes to accomplishing his will. The second is this, that there are no delays with God. I think the New Living Translation captures the sense of verse 2. Listen closely. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son for Abraham in his old age. And this happened, what? At just the time that God said it would. We talk about this a lot. God is never late. He's never behind schedule. 
God's never surprised by anything. Everything that God says happens, happens at just the time he attends it to happen, which leads to a third observation, that is that there are no accidents with God. You see, if God has nothing limiting him, and if it happens at just the time that he says it will, that means that God is in control. Now, sometimes we look at our situation, we feel frustrated by our circumstances, we're impatient, we're scared. But just remember, with God there are no accidents. And have you ever thought about this? Maybe God's plan or purposes for your life runs a lot bigger than simply your comfort or your convenience in the moment. Maybe he has bigger things intended for you. Maybe there's more things that God is doing in your life right then and there. In fact, this is surely what he did for Abraham and Sarah. Because in their story, a lot of discomfort led to this moment of absolute joy. Look now at verses 3 through 7. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac, And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. I've tried to get into Sarah's shoes a little bit, and Just envision what it would be like 25 years ago. Imagine if you were to sit her down and say, Sarah, in 25 years you're going to have a son, but you're going to have to go through pain, heartache. You're going to have to feel frustrated. You're going to have to feel jealous when you see other women pregnant and carrying children and and you're not doing the same. And you think if you said all those things to Sarah that she'd be like, oh, sure, sign me up for that. That sounds great. No. Let's, let's go with a different plan here, God. I'd like something else. But at the back end, right, she can clearly see the beautiful plan of God and her faith has grown. Listen again to her words, verse 6. God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears of this will laugh over me. It's a playful pun upon Isaac's name, laughter. You see, when she started out with this journey, her laughter was the laughter of bitterness. But God's a transformative God, and when he visits his people, he transforms their bitterness into joy and even into playful irony. Have you ever met one of those parents that's sending two children off to grad school and another to kindergarten? just kind of makes you laugh, doesn't it? In the first service, Kim Range said, don't judge me over that. That was funny. She's lived that 22 years between her children. It makes you laugh and you think to yourself, glad it wasn't me. Here's the principle. Faith does not grow in a hothouse, but in the unpredictable climates of life. I was powerfully reminded of this principle not long ago. I was speaking to another Sarah about another Isaac. 
A month or so back, uh, Katie invited her over to watch the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society. I mean, doesn't that just sound like an attention grabber? Made sure that I had a good book that night. Uh, But before they went downstairs to watch the movie, we talked about just the events that have occurred in the last year over Isaac's life. Uh, The opportunities for him to go and be with the Hyannis Fire Department, the the fundraisers and outreaches that have occurred, the impact of her blog to people who are following and reading it, the other families who are going through the same experience. And I asked her this question. I said, Sarah, did you ever imagine when you first heard that Isaac was diagnosed with leukemia, how God would use his cancer to impact so many? It was in that moment that it kind of dawned on all of us and we cried and laughed at the same time at the faithfulness of God. You see, prior to going through leukemia with Isaac, Sarah never in a million years would have wished this upon herself. She wouldn't have taken all the money in all the world to go through this. But, God in his eternal wisdom is taking them through the unpredictable climate of cancer. And as we're watching this story unfold, we're seeing the fingerprints of God all over it. As we move into the story more, we see a scene where Abraham throws a celebration for Isaac. He's just been weaned. He's about three years old. And like I said, births are times to celebrate. No matter how a child comes into the world, it's always a joyous occasion. It's always a miracle. And yet, we've seen in life that that's not always the case. Uh, This past Thursday, I went and met with Robin Hayward. She's the director of a nonprofit organization called A Baby Center. She's also a member here. And uh, this center deals with families who are going through tough situations and they have babies and they're trying to care for their young children and they provide those tangibles like clothes and diapers and formula and wipes and all the things that they need. And one thing that Robin said is every time someone walks through the doors of this place, we make it a point to say to that mother, congratulations. You know why? Because in a lot of these circumstances, that might be the first time she's heard it. Isn't that sad? See, the, point, the reality is this. Often in life, pain and joy coexist. Look at the story, verses 8 through 10. <clears throat> and the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son. Once again, the name Isaac is played upon in the story. This time, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. Now this is more of a malevolent laughter that Ishmael is laughing towards Isaac. 
He's not just joking around with the little three-year-old here. I can imagine if I put myself into his shoes that this is the laughter of bitterness and resentment. Because he was the only son of Abraham for 16 or for 13 years, and now there's this little intruder on the scene. And he's thinking about it. And he's seeing that this child could take away everything from him. His inheritance, the love of his father. And he has been quite like a stepchild most of his life anyway. He shouldn't have done it. He shouldn't have laughed at the little boy. He shouldn't have felt the anger in his heart that he did. So Sarah sees it and she quickly connects the dots and of course Mama Bear comes out in the scene. Her motives appear to be a protection of her son mixed with petty bitterness. She won't even use Hagar or Ishmael's name. Cast out this slave woman with her son. As a side note, Beware of bitterness and resentment. They're a poison to the human heart. Jerry Bridges said these words, uncontrolled temper is soon dissipated on others. Resentment, bitterness, and self-pity build up inside our hearts and eat away at our spiritual lives like a slowly spreading cancer. Avoid it. Don't let it poison you. Don't let it run its course and just keep cyclically bringing you back to the place of hatred and anger. I've, I've observed two alarming trends with bitterness as a pastor. The first is that bitterness only grows as you feed it. It's like a, a bed of coals. The more coals that you add to the fire only causes the, the fire to, to burn more intensely. I've been in the counseling office. I've sat across someone who is reliving events that happened 20 years ago as if they happened yesterday. And they're angrier about it today than they were back then. It's as if you're sitting in that room and you're just envisioning day after day drumming up the same circumstances, hating the person, hating the people around them. Friends, the only way to find relief for that hurt is to, by the grace of God, forgive that person, move past it, and entrust that situation to the justice of God. The second observation is that some people become so consumed with bitterness that they are ever on the lookout for new offenses. Have you ever been around someone like this? You're walking on eggshells around them. Uh, you are one offense away from experiencing their fury and they constantly want to bring you into their web of resentment and hurt, listing people by name and citing all the instances of what they've done. The Scriptures is very clear about that kind of person. Proverbs 22, 24 through 25. Don't befriend angry people or associate with hot-tempered people, or you will learn to be like them and endanger your soul. That's a serious warning. You see, while Sarah is seething with 
indignation. Abraham is in a much different place. He's asking the question, how many times am I going to have to pay for that same mistake that I made 16 years ago? Verse 11 tells us, and the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. Have you ever felt stuck in that place? You made a decision long ago. It was a really bad decision. You know it was a bad decision. No one has to tell you that it was a bad decision because each and every so, or every so often it seems like that decision comes back to you face to face again. You're living with the consequences. And like Abraham, you just keep asking the question, how many more times am I going to have to pay for this? Remember that horizontal beam that I talked about earlier. We talked about the fact that while God forgives every sin that we've committed against him, we still experience the effects or the consequences. So by sleeping with Hagar, Abraham didn't just make a little mistake in that moment. He set off a sequence of events that created a moral knot that would exist in his family for the rest of his life, and he also has jeopardized the inheritance of his son Isaac by doing that. This is the dilemma. During Abraham's time, there was a law in the code of Hammurabi which said that an accepted son of a handmaid had a legal claim on the father's property. So Ishmael is a legitimate son and would have all the rights to inherit the father's property from the son of promise. Sarah sees the mocking. She's aware of the legal ramifications, but she's also aware of another law, the, the law found in Lipit Ishtar Code, which says that those who are slaves and given their freedom forfeit their rights to the inheritance of the father. That seems to be what's going on here. Sarah wants Abraham to set him free so that he will have no claim over the father's estate. And I mean, talk about an impossible moral knot. How do you untangle that? Sarah, she's right. Yes, she's resentful. Yes, she's bitter. Yes, she can't let go of the past, but she's right. How do you fix this situation? It's not one of those kind of situations that you can just smooth over. Somebody has to draw the short straw here. And will it be Isaac, the son of promise, or Ishmael, Abraham's firstborn son. How do you fix this? That's when God steps in. Look at verses 12 to 14. God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. If you're a father or a mother, your heart just stings at the thought of this, doesn't it? I mean, it doesn't get worse than this. Abraham 
essentially, is being asked by God to do the hardest thing that any parent ever learns to have to do in this world, and that is to entrust your child to the exclusive care of God. Have you ever had to do that? And if you say to yourself right now, well, that's an easy thing to do, you're lying to yourself. That's exceptionally hard. Because sometimes God's going to take your children down a route that you would have never have asked for them to go. It might be off into the wilderness of Beersheba. In reading this week, I read of a conversation that Chuck Swindoll had with concentration camp survivor Corey Ten Boone. He writes, After a worship service on one occasion, I stood at the door greeting people as they left, and eventually it was just Corey and me and my family. I'll never forget the moment. My, my kids are playing all around, and she asked if they were mine. Yes, I said, two boys, two girls. Give me your hand, Pastor Svindal, she said as she held out her little hands. I put my hands in hers as the kids bounced all around. Listen to me, Pastor Swindoll. Hold everything loosely. Hold everything loosely. Because if you don't, it will hurt when the Father pries your fingers open and takes them from you. They're His, you know. Not yours. You know that, right? He said, yes, ma'am. I know that. Then she pushed her hands together with mine and released a deep sigh. When I looked into her eyes, I could see her sister Betsy, whom she had lost in the Nazi death camp. She knew what she was talking about. Her message was clear. She didn't need to say anything more. Don't clutch. Don't cling. Our children are not really ours. And in his self-will, Abraham created this impossible mess and now he had to entrust his son to the love of God. You see, because Sarah only loved Isaac. Hagar only loved Ishmael. Abraham loved both of the sons, but he was powerless to fix this impossible problem. But more importantly, God says to Abraham, that's okay, Abraham, because I love both of these sons more than you ever could. And I have the power to fix this impossible problem. But Hagar and Ishmael, their story would have to get worse before it gets better. They're wandering in the wilderness of Beersheba, and if you haven't seen this region before, it's arid and barren wasteland. I've never seen it personally, but it's one of those places that you know of where even an experienced traveler in these deserts could suffer an ill fate if they make one misstep. Hagar sets out towards the direction of Egypt. She's licking her wounds. This was her home country. It's the only place she knows to go back to. And somewhere along the way, she runs out of water, which she knows could mean only one thing for these two. Verses 15 and 16. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him, a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, and she said, 
Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. Poor Hagar. She is one of those people that hasn't been handed a good card her entire life. No one asked her how she felt. No one asked her what she wanted. She was told to go lie down in a tent. And then she carried this child in her womb that she didn't know. She gave birth to him nine months later and I imagine that as she nursed that child, she looked down into his beautiful little face and said, Mama's always going to protect you. Mama's always going to care for you. And now 16 years later, she's sitting in Beersheba and she can't protect him. She's all used up. And there's only tears. Maybe you identify with Hagar. Life has left you feeling desolate, parched, lost, wandering aimlessly, all used up. There were people in your life that you should have been able to count on, who should have taken care of you, who should have had your best interest in mind, wanted something for you and not something from you. But time and time again, it seems like people only use you. Well, friends, I've got good news for you this morning. No matter if everyone in this world lets you down, forgets you, uses you, abandons you, treats you as if you were less than human, the great God of the universe, he is here and he is for you. And that's the truth. He hears those cries and he responds to them. And God heard, verse 17, the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened his eyes, her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up and he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. If you felt like Hagar, consider the actions of God in this story. Verse 17, God hears. Verse 19, God opens her eyes to the provision that was already there, that already existed for them. Verse 20, God was with the boy. You see, God is there in your situation from start to finish. And he will lead you through it if you will let him. As we close out this passage, I want to give some applicational thought to dealing with those sins that we have been affected by that represent that horizontal beam. I can just imagine hearing a sermon like this and you're left with the tension, which is the idea that there are effects for the sins that I've committed in the past, but now you're asking the question, well, what do I do about that? I don't want to just carry that with me that I'm kind of resigned and stuck to live like this for the rest of my life. And I think that there are certain steps that we need to consider And how do I reconcile my past as I move forward in the grace of God? Let's consider three lessons or three thoughts. Uh, The first thought is this. 
Seek to understand how your sinful choices have hurt others. You imagine if Abraham and Sarah engaged in a little self-reflection about this situation, how things might could have been different. Imagine if Sarah had a little more grace instead of responding with bitter resentment, or if the two of them had come together and resourced Hagar and Ishmael, even if they needed to go a little better. I remember having a conversation with a young man who was dealing with the multitude of bad decisions as he went around life burning bridges and then moving on to the next bridge to burn. And often his decisions would blow up in his face and then when he kind of wallowed in the misery of it, he would come back and he would want to make things right, say he was sorry, but he never got very far. Why? Because he would just kind of brush off the bad behavior. He would say things like, that's in my past. People just need to get over it. Why do they keep bringing up that situation that happened a couple of months ago? There's a problem with that mindset. Well, it is in the past, and God forgives us of our sins. That horizontal beam has been impacted. And if you want to make a bridge, if you want to repair a bridge that you've broken down, you have to begin by assessing the damage that has occurred. Because if you don't assess the damage, how do you rightly respond to the brokenness there? Which leads to a second point. Own what you did. Face the consequences. You may not know this about me, but before walking with Christ, I had a reputation for being a bully, especially with my brothers. I was the dominant brother, the athletic one, the strong one, and I could exert my force upon them to get what I wanted. I did this so often through our childhood, but the time that I was graduating high school, both of my brothers in their own way said to me, I don't want anything to do with you. And I'm so arrogant at that time. I say, oh, it doesn't matter. And I just walk off. But then I gave my life over to Christ. And you know what God does when you trust him. He starts this overhaul work in the human heart. He started showing me all the ways that I'd hurt my brothers. He brought to mind things that I had said to them that were just awful things to say to someone, ways that I had kind of bullied them and pushed them around. And he also gently gave me a vision in my brain of what a good brother would have looked like when we were growing up. And I was cut to the core. I needed to do something about this. I needed to own this and face the consequences well, in the case of my younger brother, God led me to acknowledge what I had done to him in a five-page letter. I sat down and wrote out everything that I could remember as far as I had done to him, and then I asked for his forgiveness. And I said these words to him at the end, committing to change my conduct. I said, I know I wasn't a very good brother to you during our childhood, but if you will let me, I want to be a good brother to you moving forward. I'll tell you, God has repaired that relationship greatly since that time. Some past decisions are very difficult to own, but we can't move past them unless we're willing to acknowledge the damage that has occurred and face it with that person and say, I'm sorry for what I've done, and how can I make it better? How can I commit to a new day with you? 
But then you ask yourself the question, well, what, if, what do I do if I've done those things? If I've, is the best that I know how, understood the situation, and I've owned it, and I've faced the consequences, yet today I still walk around and carry that overwhelming sense of guilt. Thirdly, I would say, you need to embrace grace. You see, when you understand the depths of how your sin has harmed others, Sometimes the most difficult person to forgive is yourself. You think, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the damage that has occurred. I can't undo that. And that is a true statement. But, remember that you can forgive yourself because God forgives you. Do you know, ultimately, whenever you commit a sin, when you transgress, when you offend, the most offended party in that exchange is God himself, the creator of the universe who made you, who loves you, who you've been operating as if he didn't exist. He was so offended that he had to send his own son, Jesus, to live a perfect life, shed his blood on the cross to forgive you of that sin. If God can forgive you, then you can forgive yourself. Micah 7.19 says he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. That's what God does. So forgiveness for yourself, forgiveness in general, begins with coming to a right relationship with God, taking care of that vertical beam through Jesus Christ. The Bible says that we receive that forgiveness in the book of Colossians through Jesus whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So let me ask you a question. Have you trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? It starts there. I was thinking of a conversation that I read recently, Chicago Bulls dynasty team, Dennis Rodman, you all remember this character, that's him there floating in the air. Uh, he was a powerful forward in basketball, one of the greatest rebounders in basketball history, and quite the character, like I said. He wrote a book, and in it he talked about a preoccupation with suicide and death, and the interviewer with ESPN obviously asked a, a very logical question to Dennis Rodman. He said, what do you think happens after you die? I mean, assuming that there's a heaven and a hell, where do you think that you're going to go? And so Rodman says this, I think that I'm right on the line between heaven and hell. Stumped, the interviewer says, well, are you talking about purgatory here? And then in a moment of candor, he says something very refreshingly honest to him. He says, no, I think I'd go to hell. Because I've added up the good things that I've done and compared it with the bad things that I've done, and the bad really outweighs the good. Then he added, But I'm trying to get that turned around. I hope someday I'll be floating on those white clouds of love. God bless Dennis Rodman. You have to know two things in order to get to heaven, and he has one of them figured out right now. He knows that he's a, he is a sinner and that he deserves hell. And I got to tell you, friends, it's rare to find someone that's willing to acknowledge that. You might look at Dennis Rodman's exploits and say, I agree with him. But it's really not your decision. He isn't going to hell because he married himself on television. No, he is 
going to hell because he's a sinner like everybody else in the world is a sinner. You see, the truth is that when you stand before God, he's not going to compare the good with the bad that you've done because apart from Jesus Christ, the bad news is is that the bad always outweighs the good. Not for just Dennis Rodman, but for you and even for people like Billy Graham and yes, even Mother Teresa. When it comes to salvation, we're all in the same boat. We deserve hell. But thank God he sent Jesus to open the door to heaven. Now, when you think about that cross and God's Son dying on it in your place, sometimes we struggle in our mind with the thought of grace. How could God save me without me having a part to play in this exchange? I got to tell you, friends, you did have a part to play. I had a part to play. We committed the sins that led us to need salvation. That was the only part we played. 2,000 years ago, though, Jesus also had a part to play. The Bible says that he shed his precious blood to make atonement with God for you, for your sins. So I ask you that question again. Have you trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? Would you bow your heads with